0: We're in Walmart stocking up on provisions for our cabin when we get a call from a woman named Sylvia. She says that she does not want to be interviewed again because the last time she came forward, her entire life was put under a microscope. It was interesting both in that she pointed out a lot of the discrepancies, um, but she was explaining those discrepancies and she was insisting that she's right and that she did see what she saw. And she's reluctant to talk but I was able to sort of talk to her for about 20 minutes and explain to her who we were, what we're doing, that we're legit. And I feel like if we get some new information or we have something she can collaborate with us on, I feel like she will talk. Sylvia is heavily featured in ABC's 40-minute episode of their show called Primetime that was dedicated to Janie's case. It aired in 2009. In the program, Sylvia tells the producers that at the time of Janie's death, she was a runner someone who'd deliver drugs to parties. And on September 9th, 1989, she said she was asked to deliver drugs to a high school party that was happening in a cabin on Zack Road in Marshall, Arkansas. She said when she pulled up to the cabin, she was looking straight at the porch and she witnessed a girl hit another girl in the face. Sylvia said she hightailed it out of there because she didn't want any trouble. She had bags of pot in her car and didn't want to risk arrest. Sylvia didn't come forward until 2007, three years into a new investigation into Janie Ward's death. She claimed she had been scared, but now she said she had a kid herself, and she felt for the Ward family, and she wanted the Wards to know once and for all what happened to their daughter. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. <laughs> Like some of them make sense, like Nighthawk Road and Cricket Lane, and then some of them are like High Tech Road. They seem to be almost like purposely ironic. Right now, we are going to the cabin where the party happened and where Janie fell. What whatever happened to Janie happened. Yeah. In one mile, turn right onto Zach Road and we've managed to get some directions from the Freedom of Information request and from, I compared that address with the name of the person who who bought the cabin afterwards, so we're gonna go out there and look for it. The cabin on Zack Road has been renovated in the 30 years since Janie's death. It's been spruced up since that fateful night in 1989 when Janie's cousin Jay lived there alone. The house had two bedrooms. One had a dirty mattress on the ground The other, where Jay slept, had a mattress with stained sheets and three thin pillows on it. Three shirts hung in the closet. Another room was converted into a makeshift workspace and was filled with old food containers and another folded-up mattress and file cabinet that looked like someone had tossed into the room. The living room had a matching set of faded floral furniture, and there was a model of a boat on display. The cabin didn't have electricity or running water. So the appliances and the kitchen and bathroom were unusable. And the whole house was covered in matted brown carpet. The walls were unfinished. The house had two porches. The one facing the gravel road that leads up to the cabin is where Janie supposedly fell off the step. And that step was no more than 10 inches in height. In December of 2004, Special Prosecutor Tim Williamson was court-appointed to Janie's case. At the time, He was a prosecutor based in Mena, Arkansas. Governor Mike Huckabee sets aside $10,000 for the investigation so that Williamson can build a team of investigators and a deputy prosecutor. The governor's spotlight on the case gets readers hooked to Mike Masterson's column, and journalists from around the state start covering the case again. One of those journalists was Jason Peterson. And in his news report that aired on KATV, he puts a cushion down where Janie falls and demonstrates the fall himself, tumbling backwards and landing with a heavy smack onto the cushion. When you sort of demonstrated the fall off the porch, what was your impression yeah. of, the, of the porch and how far the fall was? Well,
1: that's what I wanted to try to convey to our viewers. You know, it, it's been widely thought that she, I mean, it's, it's a fact she fell off the porch. Three people witnessed her fall off the porch. What's in dispute is whether that fall could kill someone. A backward fall off a porch, a, a nasty plunge, as Investigator Beach uh, years later, would, would call it. And so I thought the best way to try to show our viewers exactly what the people at that party saw was to fall off the porch myself. One of the reasons I wanted to do it was because autopsy reports showed that her head had been snapped backwards. But... Um, a fall like that does not propel your head backwards it, if anything it pushes it forwards when you hit the ground and so the physical act of falling off the porch didn't ma- match the physical evidence of a head being snapped backwards you know either struck in the face or or somehow uh, pushed backwards from the
0: from the face and do you think that when you were when you were re- you know when you were falling off the porch it's widely been described as she fell 10 inches but actually then others were saying but it wasn't really 10 inches if you count if you're going from the top of her head right, it was more exactly. than 10 inches yeah.
1: yeah it's much more I mean it, it, it's it's a much f- further fall than 10 inches the porch while it's true is 10 inches high you're falling from a height and if you're falling straight back you know that's probably a, maybe a six or seven foot you know acceleration before you hit but I think the, the prosecutor at one time said he had seen a case where a man in Hot Springs fell off, a, made a similar fall, and he was now a quadriplegic. And I guess what you have to decide as a viewer is, you know, is that enough to kill someone? I'm sure, freak accidents happen, but for the most part, the human body's designed to live. It's pretty difficult to to uh, kill someone or, you know, you can you can sustain a lot of injuries and still live. And would that have been enough to kill her or... Did something else happen, uh, either before or after that fall, that contributed to her death?
0: Peterson's report was in 2005, a few months into Tim Williamson's investigation. And in his report, he brings up suspicions that he has about Janie's case. First, the fact that Ron Rose, Sherry, and Kim all said they went straight to the bank parking lot, even though dispatcher Harold Young said they went by the police station first. Peterson talked about the condition of Janie's clothing. The fact that her clothes were wet and sandy, even though the cabin and the truck bed were reportedly dry and dusty. He also mentioned the fact that those same clothes went missing, and that the x-rays the ward supposedly saw in 1989 that showed a fracture were not the same ones sent to them from the crime lab. And he pointed out the discrepancies in witness statements from Sarah and some of her friends. He also said that the ambulance run reports pertaining to Janie's death were stolen. In the months after Janie died, the ambulance service had reported that the building had been broken into. Only one report was stolen, Janie's. Peterson reached out to 26 people at the party. He was able to get a few people to open up to him, but he got a lot of doors slammed in his face and a lot of people hung up on him. Most people did not want to revisit the night that Janie died.
1: I think we did a pretty good job. I did a pretty good job contacting as many people at the party as I could. Now, as far as what their reactions were, I thought maybe time would have, you know, loosened some lips. They'd be less fearful to talk or to tell what they know, assuming there's something to know. But, you know, a lot of people, as soon as I identified who I was and and what I was calling about or what I was visiting about, uh, shut it down right away. I mean, it was just a lot of over and over people not wanting to to talk about it at all. Uh, which kind of surprised me, although maybe they've just they're just tired of hearing about it. Or tired of talking about it or tired of thinking about it as soon they do.
0: When he tried to call Gary Don, Dawn, Gary Don's girlfriend gave Peterson a number for him to reach him on. That number one eight hundred fuck you. One other thing we still don't know the answer to is the route that the truck took from the cabin to the town square. There are two ways to drive from the cabin on Zack Road to Marshallstown Square. The most direct route is turning left out of the driveway. You go a few miles on rocky roads and then hit the pavement. On this route, you pass the sheriff's office's old location, several homes, and the community center, where on the night Janie died, there was a huge event going on. But the people in the truck who carried Janie in the back say they didn't stop or notice the community meeting. They say they never stopped until they got to the town square, which they went to because it was close to the only medical facility in town, the ambulance service. It was also across the street from the car wash. The alternate route, a little longer and even rockier, is a right turn out of the driveway. This route goes along the creek bed and comes out at the same place on the pavement as the first route. 5.1 miles to the main road and 0.8 miles, only really like 0.8, like around just under a mile to a good paved road. Whichever route they chose, the drive from the cabin on Zach Road to Marshall's Town Square should not take any more than 20 minutes. We'll be right back. That's a camera, isn't it?
1: There's never been a better time to switch to Geico. Save an extra 15% when you switch by October 7th. Limitations apply. Visit geico.com for details.
2: Made by Women is a new show brought to you by the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio. At a moment when businesses face some of the biggest challenges in recent history, we bring you inspiring stories, practical insights, and shared learnings to help you successfully navigate today's environment. Benefit from the experiences of legendary entrepreneurs, fierce up-and-comers, as well as everyday women in business who have found success their own way. Whether you're looking to start a new business, pivot an existing one, or expand with an eye to the future, Made by Women gives you the inspiration, expertise, and hard-won lessons you need to make it happen. Consider it your real-world MBA, designed for the new now. I'm Kim Azzarelli, and you can listen to Made by Women on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Just
0: like so many other people who worked on Janie's case, the wards found the special prosecutor, Tim Williamson, disappointing.
3: How how did that affect you and Ron, the whole Tim Williamson thing? I know he came and prayed with you, right?
4: Oh, yeah. What a joke he was. And the governor gave him $10,000... To help to investigate. He did nothing but covered up. I mean it was already covered up and all he did was <sighs> help them. I mean all he did was Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he came and with you. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you didn't
0: hear from him, Mike was saying never, you didn't never, hear from him after
4: that? Never. I mean, we might ask questions, but we never got anything. Nothing.
0: Journalist Mike Masterson writes about this in his column about how much faith the wards put into Tim Williamson. They prayed together. But after this meeting, Mike said it became harder and harder to get in touch with him.
3: The wards contacted Tim Williamson right away, and Williamson drove to Marshall and met at a church with the family and prayed together for justice to emerge in this case. He promised the family, I will find out what happened to your daughter." You know, and if, if need be, there'll be accountability. He promised them that in the church. Well, they believed, him. they wanted to believe him, of course. I mean, Ron called me and said, well, we have hope for the first time that something's going to happen. He seems like a very sincere guy He will do the right thing. For the first week or two, Tim Williamson called me, knowing I'd been involved in it and writing about it. And he said, you know, I'm going to rely on you, Mike, if you don't mind, just for information if I get stuck. And I said, sure. I don't have anything to hide, and I'd be glad to help because I'd like to see justice done too. So we kind of had a rapport until about the third week into it when he called me and said he was going to uh, the crime lab to start really digging deeper into this, all this, and all the records there at the crime lab, and blah, blah, blah. He said, No, I'll get back to you next week. I said, great. So I waited. A week passed, nothing. Two weeks, nothing. Finally, about probably three weeks after, you know, I uh, tried to reach him and couldn't get through. You know, I was like, oh, he's busy, he's tied up. Now, who knows what happened to the crime lab? I don't. But logically, I would say something happened to the crime lab, and he was told something at the crime lab. And during his visit over in Little Rock, that maybe sort of um, dampened his attitude, put it that way, because after that, he would announce that he's dug into this, he's got a staff... Helping him do it, doing interviews, going to find out what happened. He spent four years total, and he amassed lots of, you know, paper, stacks of paper with interviews and stuff. So when you looked at it, you know, it looks like, boy, this guy's been really busy. But when you broke it down, there wasn't anything in the substance that mattered.
0: Tim Williamson's report makes up the bulk of the police case file we got from the Arkansas State Police. It's filled with transcriptions of interviews with witnesses and a bunch of repeated material from the first investigation's case file. A lot of the accusations against Williamson center on the fact that people didn't think he was working hard enough. In the case file, there are dozens of letters addressed to Williamson from people around Arkansas telling him to get a move on. On page 3,860, I find a note from Williamson's deputy prosecutor. He says they should hold off on conducting interviews until after the wards have concluded their civil suit. That's the one where they're petitioning to change Janie's death certificate from undetermined to homicide. And he says that they might as well hold off because the ward's lawyer is already deposing witnesses, meaning court-ordered subpoenas to get them to interview. That way, they wouldn't have to double up on the work. The depositions were done by the ward's lawyer, Jerry Salings, Saling's law firm started working for the wards when the family needed to get Janie's body exhumed before the second autopsy. What we're hoping to get from these depositions is the answer to some key questions, including, how much time elapsed from the time Janie fell to the ground to the time that she got to the bank parking lot? And did the truck make any other stops en route? I'm also interested in the depositions from Ron Rose and Kim, because they were the ones in the truck. I'm also interested in Gary Don's deposition, because Richard Walter from the v Society said Gary Don told him a completely different story than the one that was in his statement. In Kim's deposition, she's cooperative, but she gives yes and no answers and doesn't elaborate. But what she says in her interview mostly matches her original statements, which were taken in the months after the incident.
5: You, you, you said that you and Janie were good friends? We were friends. Okay. Do you know if she was having any problems with anybody at school? No, I don't know. Don't know. No. You're not saying she wasn't. You just don't know. I don't. Know. Had you heard any rumors about her having any problems at school with anybody? No. After Janie got in the vehicle with you, did you go straight to the party? Yes.
0: Here, Salling is asking about how they got there in case they had passed the river or the creek before going to the party.
5: Didn't go by the river? No. Didn't stop to buy anything? No. Didn't go drink somewhere else or anything at all? Did you pick up anybody else on the way to the party? No. Okay, so help me out. How long does it take to get from the
0: square out to where the party was?
6: 20 minutes, maybe
0: 30. That's just a guess. Ron Rose is more descriptive in his answers.
5: Do you remember what she was wearing?
7: They like a blue jeans and a black shirt. I'm not positive. That's, you know.
0: He said he felt like it was his duty to get help for Janie.
7: Well, I say like, knowing her as good as good friends we was, being kin and everything, and I feel like it's my responsibility to get her out of there, you know, so we tried to get her in the front of my truck, try to load her up.
5: And how did you try to do that?
7: Just about three or four, I think there's four of us there, four or five of us picked her up and tried to handle her as best we could and tried to slide her up in the front of my truck, in the cab of my truck, and we couldn't get her in there. She's too big and she was limp, you know. She just, it was hard. We couldn't get her in there right, you know.
5: The back of your truck, was it wet or dry?
7: Pretty sure it
0: was dry. Here, Ron gives you know, more details about up. the car wreck. This is the one that we talked about in the last episode. The vehicle was Brian's. He became hysterical after Janie was pronounced dead in the parking lot.
5: As you were leaving, do you remember Brian getting his truck stuck?
7: Yes, he wrecked at the top of the hill up there. Had a wreck up there. Uh,
5: Who was in the truck with him?
7: Uh, He was in a car. I don't know who was with him for sure, but he was in a car. A car? Yeah.
5: All right. Did he block the...
7: He had the road block. He'd come out this big steep hill. When he come out on top, he lost it. It nosed off in the bank. Then back in, it was sticking all the way off the road.
5: So how did did y'all get around him?
7: I had a friend, Jimmy, come up there and yank the back of the truck. The bank yanked his car out of the way to where I could drive up on the bank and get by.
5: And then after you got on the past him, you've got a gravel road for yeah, a while?
7: four ways, yes. Yeah.
5: And did y'all ever stop? I
7: never stopped.
0: Neither Ron nor Kim said they stopped by the police station. And they both said they took a left out of the driveway. The more direct route that does not pass by the creek. Gary Don's deposition is openly hostile at the beginning, especially because during the depositions, Ron and Mona Ward are in the room, and you can feel the tension.
5: You're here under a court order, mm-hmm. uh, subpoena is a court order from the judge, mm-hmm. and uh, I get to ask you questions, and- It's my get,
6: right not to answer them if I don't want to.
5: Well, that's what I'm- that's I'm about I'm, here
6: to not go further than this right here right now.
5: I understand. Well, let me just tell you the way this works. In a deposition, if you refuse to answer the question, you can walk out of here today. Mm-hmm. And I can go to the judge, and I can say he refused to answer these questions, and he can force you to come back here and, and answer them, and then you pay for the deposition. Go for right it. Right now, I'm paying for it. Go for it. Okay. Well, I, I don't want to get in the conflict. I don't
6: want you. to fool with this. I, this man right here, I don't care to he be in the same room with him because of the crap he's put me through. And I do not like to even be in the same block with a man.
5: You're pointing to Ron. Ron Ward, Ward right okay. there. All right. Um, well, I, I can tell that your your feelings are a little
6: very, very.
0: Sallings asks him to review his statement, and Gary Don says he didn't say most of the stuff that was in it. To him, it looked like someone made up his answers.
6: Can I say this? Sure. It, it, in some parts is. It's, it's like it's backwards. I mean, like this. I don't really know how to explain it to you. It just, it's just like I told you, like it had animation or something. Somebody created it, theirself, how they want it to be. That's okay. what I'm saying.
5: So it's not the truth of what you said? No, not, no. Okay. Uh, now it's two pages. Did you read all of it? I've read enough. Uh, th- that's fine. Huh? So I read enough. Somebody
6: made that up.
5: Okay. Tell me what part of it is not true i never
6: seen her filling no cup from no keg.
5: Okay.
6: I've never seen her drinking.
5: Let's take it one one statement at a time so I can keep up mm-hmm. with this, okay? Um, let's see. It says, I got to the party around 6. Ron, Kim, and Janie came in together. Is that, is that what you said or not? That's about the only thing i seen there in the first
6: sentences that was Correct.
5: Okay, that I can recall. Well, let me tell you this: This is a statement that we got from the police department, and this is supposed. This is a uh, copy of an interview that supposedly Bill Beach of the state police took, and this is his statement. This isn't anything I came up with. They right? changed
6: their. They changed so much stuff over the years in the department down there at that time.
5: I'm not disputing it. I'm asking mm-hmm. questions. I'm interested understand. in what you're telling me. I understand. Okay, so I want to know what in here uh, is not your statement.
0: Sallings goes line by line, and Gary Don lists out what he doesn't agree with from his original it statement. He says,
5: I went over to her, and it was like the breath was knocked out of her. You're shaking your head. No, sorry. All right. It's all right? Um... And her shirt had come up when she fell, and I looked at her stomach, and I couldn't tell that she was breathing. No. Me and somebody picked her up and put her on the porch. No. Her eyes were open about halfway and rolled back, and she was not blinking. No. I believe she had messed in her pants, too. No. I couldn't get anybody to help me.
6: The the urinating part is the only part that uh, I remember... uh, it looked like to me.
0: In this deposition, Gary Don doesn't mention anything about the creek bed and the drowning theory that we had heard from Richard Walter of the v Society. These answers are notably different from Gary Don's original statement in 1989 and his lengthy interview with Bill Beach in the months after Janie's death. In this deposition, he says he did not move Janie onto the porch, and he also says she could have been lying on the ground for up to 20 minutes. Before, he had said he had immediately gone over to her after she had fallen and moved her up onto the porch. He also doesn't remember his interview with Bill Beach and says he had to do a polygraph test, basically a lie detector test, at the Searcy County Jail. But there is no mention of a polygraph test anywhere in the case file. In fact, Bill Beach later specifically said that he hadn't administered any polygraph tests during his investigation. On the night Janie died, Ron Ward saw his daughter in the morgue at the Kaufman Funeral Home around midnight. He was there with the coroner of Searcy County, Thomas Martin, and Ron said he had to insist on an autopsy. Sallings deposed Tom to ask him about his impressions of that night.
5: Tell us your name, please.
6: Thomas W. Martin, Jr.
5: And Mr. Martin, I understand that you have some difficulty hearing at times? I do. All right. And you know we're here today for a deposition?
0: Right. At the time of Janie's death, Tom had been a coroner for about 25 years, and his role was mainly to declare someone dead and also determine a cause of death. If he couldn't determine anything, he would send the body to the medical examiner in Little Rock. Sallings asked him a question about his coroner report. Next to a lot of the questions on the form, Tom left it blank or wrote a question mark. He could not tell if there were abrasions on Janie's body. He could not tell what injury there was, or if any foul play occurred. He had ruled out fairly obvious causes of death, like gunshot wounds, and said he didn't see anything obviously wrong with Janie. Basically, he said he had no idea what happened to Janie. And he said he also didn't finish filling out the form because he was already intending to have the body taken to Little Rock. In fact, while he couldn't exactly remember, he said he figured that he would have already called the medical examiner's office by the time he met Ron at the funeral home.
5: Did you see Mr. Ward that
0: night, Ron Ward? Yes, he came to the funeral. And would
5: that have been before or after the coroner, the medical examiner was called?
6: Probably after he was called. I I don't really remember the time frame that that he came into the funeral. Do
5: you have any memory of him insisting that an autopsy be
6: done? Uh, No. Don't have any memory? of he didn't have to insist on it because it was already on the way.
0: The investigators working on the case did conduct and record interviews from 2007 to 2008. Sarah is a glaring omission from these interviews. They interviewed J.D. and Kathy, the ambulance service attendants who checked Janie in the bank parking lot. They're the ones who also said they saw debris on Janie and that her clothes were wet. They also saw swelling in her neck, and. They're the ones who filled out the ambulance run reports, the ones that had supposedly been stolen in the months after Janie's death. Here's Kathy's interview with investigators.
4: Our house was broken into, and they thought, well, J.D., who was my husband's son, thought that the run she had gotten stolen.
0: Uh-huh.
4: I found that I had put it in a different place. Mm-hmm.
0: But Kathy the clarifies, years, the run report was just misplaced, and this has been a misunderstanding. Yes,
4: we were. But it wasn't. I found it later on. I had put it under some new run sheets, and I didn't realize that I had done that.
0: Kathy again describes what she saw in the bank parking lot and what condition Janie's body was in.
1: And, was, clothing? was it damp? Was yes. hair damp? And what was the atmosphere conditions at this time? It was
4: It, uh, it was dry. But she was damp. Her clothes were damp. Her hair was damp. The only place that there wasn't any dampness was between the legs. And I th- I smelled no urine or no bed. Mm-hmm. I just had a, a, just a soft perfume smell. That was all I smelled. There was leaves and twigs and sand in her hair. And, you know, that was all I looked at at that time. And I did a cervical check, but I I didn't feel the spine. It, it, it felt like it was in place. And they said the flex. The was spine and her neck, the, neck, the yes, C-spine. I was checking the sea spine mm-hmm. And I felt like I felt everything. But, you know, I still kept traction on the neck. I, we keep traction when we move it. Okay, let me back you up to what you said a little while ago. Okay.
0: Kathy said she didn't notice an obvious neck injury when she examined Janie, nor did she see any trauma to the face. Hearing these accounts from the coroner and Kathy, neither of them could see anything obviously wrong with Janie. So if there were no obvious injuries to her face, was it possible that she was hit in the face at all? We'll be right back. We're driving to Little Rock to meet with the family's lawyer, Jerry Sallings. He conducted all the depositions and represented the Ward family for the duration of Tim Williamson's investigation. But he was also an outsider to Marshall.
2: Are you okay that we're
5: recording? I don't care if you record Excellent. It. <laughs> We wanted
0: his perspective on the case. What I believe is um,
5: at the beginning of this case, a very small town, so you don't have resources, you don't have highly developed intelligent police force, and you've got someone's family there who is prestigious in the community, the uh, district judge, I think, at the time, and all of those factors. But the biggest factor that I, I perceived as I was proceeding through the uh, depositions is I don't think they really did a good job of investigating or trying and I think they assumed that because this was a small town and Mr. Ward and his family were not sophisticated that they wouldn't have to worry about it. I think that's what happened. And then they found out differently when Mr. Ward said, had all these questions and they couldn't answer them because he didn't do a good job in the first place. They did a really bad job honestly.
0: Salings does not share the dislike that the family had towards Tim Williamson. He said they'd worked together in the court proceedings and they had a mutual respect for each other. We'd heard from some people that they thought Ron was uncooperative, but Salings said Ron always shared all of the information he collected independently with the police and with investigators.
5: I don't think anybody anything I had or that Ron had was kept secret what we tried to get were specific answers and Tim had a notebook and I don't think I have that notebook anymore but it was just topic by topic with um, you know whatever the inconsistency was or the or the question that he had that wasn't answered and I felt like it was my job to try to answer it if I could and the way you try to answer it is to go get the facts or the information through depositions or whatever and at the end of the day there were some questions that we couldn't answer and uh, still came.
0: As an investigator this is a feeling that I can relate to and while you always want to give people answers and you always want to think that there's another step that you can take or something that can be done the reality is once mistakes are made at the initial crime scene it's very difficult to go back and rectify them. Can you um, just in general, maybe not even about this case, but just talk a little about the difficulty of if the original crime scene is messed up, how difficult it is to go back and if something's not done right. I mean, is there something that the police could have done early on uh-huh. like that would have mitigated that? I mean, just from my experience with true crime, I was looking through the witness statements and they're very short. They're basically yeah. a paragraph long each. Yeah and they're just, there's no detail, there's not much detail in any of them, things like that. I yeah. mean, is there anything they could have done to...
5: I mean, the reason that you have CSI and all these police shows is because every, every fact is important. And you can't say, oh, that's not important, because you don't know what was there. So photographs, uh, statements from everybody, and following up on every lead, and I don't... That wasn't done here for sure. The assumption was is that she fell off, fell off, and and died, and and so when you work from that assumption, you're not really looking for anything else. Was there anything else? I don't know. Right. I could not get that answer. To the point that I could say that it was anything uh, specifically. I mean, there were a lot of irregularities in this and. Um, that's why Ron had questions, and that's why it was pursued. But unfortunately, it wasn't pursued early enough. And that's not his fault, because uh, he tried diligently to do it. But I think they assumed that he was just a, uh, someone who didn't know what he was doing.
0: I asked if Sallings thought there would have been any answer that would have satisfied Ron Ward. I don't
5: know. Ron was uh, he was, he was convinced it was more than natural causes or falling off the porch or any of a number of things, so I don't know if he would have been or not.
0: Maybe, if, maybe, if, maybe you felt they'd been treated with more respect and it was an answer that at least made sense, maybe. But.
5: Maybe. He was, a, he was a stubborn, determined man.
0: Remember that after Dr. Bunnell's autopsy, there are a lot of people looking into Janie's death. There's Tim Williamson and his investigation. There's the family's lawyer, Jerry Sallings, doing depositions. And there's Mike Masterson's column. It's now published multiple times a week, looking into Janie's case. And there's a film crew from ABC. The ABC producer contacts Sylvia the runner who said she witnessed Janie getting hit in the face with a baseball bat. Sylvia's information could be crucial because it appears to match Dr. Bunnell's conclusion that Janie could have been hit with a blunt force object. But some people are critical of Sylvia. They point out that she'd already given a statement in 1989. It's included in the case file. And in this statement, she told a completely different story. When Sylvia was interviewed by Tim Williamson in 2006, he asked her about inconsistencies in her story. He asked Sylvia about a previous interview that she did in 1989 with an investigator named Robert Hicks at her home. In that interview, Sylvia claimed she'd heard the story secondhand from three guys who told her a story about two girls who were mad at Janie because she was dating one of their boyfriends. Sylvia said, ...that the injury to Janie's neck came when somebody hit her with a full beer bottle. And after that, she said some guy in a pickup truck took her to the house to clean her up. In 2006, Sylvia denied to Tim Williamson that she ever made that statement. But it's a part of the police case file. Some people also criticize the fact that Sylvia came forward with this new version of events... ...after the information about Dr. Bunnell's autopsy conclusions became public... Ron told Bill Beach that he spoke to Sylvia and that Sylvia told him a story about three girls and an older guy jumping on Janie and beating her up by the river. But when ABC interviewed Sylvia, she said that she witnessed Sarah on the porch hitting Janie in the neck with a baseball bat. In the eyes of investigators, Sylvia lost any credibility she had as a witness because of all these inconsistencies. We were able to reach Tim Williamson, He's no longer practicing law, but Janie's case remains vivid in his mind.
4: Well, thank you for talking to us, Tim. I really appreciate it. Um, So you ended up with this case. Now, had you heard about it before you took it on?
8: I had recalled the the headlines of the case from 89. And then I think I probably recalled some of the uh, discussions around the case that made to the, you know, Uh, made it into the newsprint.
0: Tim started investigating, but he couldn't reach any new conclusions from the investigative evidence or from looking back at the previous autopsies. And he especially couldn't see any evidence of a homicide.
8: As we got further into it, we were not developing additional information that was, was helping me to decide, well, if this is a homicide, then who did it? It got down to the point, eventually, where as I had some, you know, we were looking at the Bunnell's findings and then going back and comparing those with the photographs and the, uh, the information collected at the time Dr. Fain Malik for the crime lab did the original autopsy. And it became apparent to me and to my investigators that we had to get to the bottom of the forensics on this because we, we truly felt because we had two somewhat competing autopsy reports, we had to get a definitive position as to what the, the medical evidence and the forensic evidence is, because inherently, you do not want to attempt to prosecute a case where you have information that is, is not corroborative of itself when it's in the forensic role. So the, we're relying on science. So the science has to agree. So, the, our only option was to do something that is extremely rare, and we did not want to do it, but we were left with no choice.
0: Much like the ward's lawyer, Jerry Sallings, Tim thought that there was no way to solve the case through the investigative evidence. So, he decided there was one last thing he could do exhume Janie's body again and perform another autopsy. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. Hell and Gone is a joint production between School of Humans and iHeartRadio. It is written and recorded by me, Catherine Townsend. Taylor Church and Gabby Watts are our producers and story editors. Executive producers are Brandon Barr, Brian Lavin, and Elsie Crowley for School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Chuck Bryant for iHeart. Our field producer is Miranda Hawkins. Theme and original score are by Ben Salih. Available wherever you get your music please visit us at helengonpodcast.com or follow us on social media.
2: Hi, I'm Devin Leary. And I'm Carolina Barlow. And we're here to tell you to dump him. Break up with your boyfriend. And we want you to listen to our podcast, True Romance, every week, where we talk about our love lives and the love lives of others. Please join our exes, who we know will also be listening. Like Kyle. Kyle, are you there? Hey, babe, how's life? No, you look good, though. Me? Oh, my God, stop. Please, I haven't even gotten a haircut in like three months. Okay, please help us pay for Carolina psychiatrist bills by listening on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I want you.